James 5, the first six verses, says this. It says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eating rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Tough words from James. And I know when you hear something like this, probably your first reaction is, thank God I'm not rich. (laughs) Stick around. When I was in college, I worked in a small factory with my dad. I got to spend some time with my dad at this factory, a small-owned family factory. And it was so small that I would spend time with the owner of the factory. We would talk, and I got to you know, share the gospel with him, and, and I gave him a Bible. And a few weeks after giving him this Bible, he came to me, he was fuming, and he said, God hates me. I said, what do you mean God hates you? He said, I read it. He hates rich people. He hates me. To which we proceeded to have a conversation around this topic of being rich and does God really hate rich people? And this is where, my friends, it's so important when you read the Bible to start with the original context. Because the original context matters. Because it's easy to take the Bible out of context. It's easy to read into the Bible in your situation versus asking first, what did they mean originally and how did we get here? This is important. Anytime you're reading the Bible, especially in America where we like to personalize everything. It's important to first say, what did they mean to the original people that they wrote to? Then how does that apply to me today? Are you tracking so far? So it's important because when you you take the full context of the Bible, you realize that God does not hate rich people. Matter of fact, James told us in chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes from, from God. So being rich is a blessing from him. Right? Being wealthy is not a problem. Actually, the Bible goes on to tell you that, that, that the money is not a problem. It's the love of money. That's the root of all evil. Right? That, that money is a great resource, but it's a terrible God. Right? It's hard to, 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 to have both of those gods in the right place. And so it's important to have the right context that God does not hate rich people. This is not what James is getting at. What James is getting at is actually how you went about making your money and how you're treating those who has helped you make your money. 
That's the difference here in this passage is that, again, let's be clear because we have selective hearing. God does not hate rich people. (laughs) Matter of fact, God blesses you. There's a lot of rich people in the Bible. When you begin to study this thing, you realize, wow, these people, a lot of them were well off. Starting with the father of faith, Abraham. Abraham was extremely wealthy. Solomon, oh my gosh, the guy had so much money that he didn't know what to do with it. David, and we can go on and on, Job. God even said, hey, have you seen my, my, my dude, Job? Dude is amazing, a man of integrity, and he was well off. So God has no problem with blessing his people. The problem is, is when money becomes an idol. In other words, when money takes the place of the God who gave it to you in the first place. Matter of fact, the reason why my boss was upset, he came across the story of this young rich ruler where Jesus told him, go sell everything and come follow me. And the Bible says that he left sad because he loved his riches more than he loved God. But I said to him, notice that he didn't, Jesus didn't tell that to every single person he met. But he knew that for this young man, that's an issue. The riches has taken place of the very God that actually blessed him with the riches. Are you tracking so far? Jesus actually tells you this in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this about this conflict that we have between God and money. Go ahead, Matthew 6. He says this to us. He says, no one can serve two masters. That was the cue. No one can serve two masters. (laughs) Someone's struggling financially back there. Um, Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, money is a great resource, but a terrible God. Why? Because money will make you worship all the wrong things. And when God is not in his rightful place, then money becomes the very thing that you're worshiping. Just like when we take offering, some people get nervous. Why? Because it it shows you the condition of your heart. You're more concerned with giving to God what's already his. (laughs) God says, you rob me when you don't give me what's already mine. And what a deal. God's like, I'm giving you all of this. All I'm saying is... Be in the generosity of who I am. Like, learn to be generous like I am. And here we are, God giving us everything, and we think we can hoard what is not his, not ours. This is why James is furious. He's saying, you guys are hoarding the very thing that God blessed you to be a blessing with. Quiet in this Baptist rich church this morning. (laughs) James is saying how you make your money matters and how you spend it matters. He says, he says to these people, he says, you, you have cheated the very people that help you make your money. You cheated their pay. 
You unjustly treat your workers. You live in luxury at the expense of others. That's the problem here. Problem was not the money. It was how they were using it. And the people were being used and abused. Are you tracking? So again, I want to make this clear. It's God that blesses. But he blesses you to be a blessing. He told that to the father of faith, Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you that you may be a blessing. You know why the Bible is so long? You know why? The Bible is meant to be a brochure. Like if God had his way, it would be Genesis, Gospels, Revelation. But because we are selfish people, the Bible is so long because, why, is it, am, I, am I having issues with the mic? What, what's wrong with the mic? I'm echoing? That's your problem. Fix it. A little feisty this morning. <laughs> I'm actually in a good mood. I'm just joking. He says, I bless you to be a blessing. The reason why the Bible is so long is because we are selfish. Instead of being blessed to bless, we get blessed and we hoard. That's the problem with the Israelites. God says, I want you to go out and bless. And they're like, no, we're good. When God provided money from heaven, they tried to hoard it. <laughs> and it went bad. God was making a point. I never meant for you to hoard. You want to meet some miserable people? Meet hoarders. And I don't mean just like the ones on TV. Like the <laughs> Those are crazy people. How come hoarders always have like 50 cats? Like what the heck? That's the stuff you want to give away. One cat is too many. And all my cat people, don't, don't get mad. God didn't create cats. But there are strong words about hoarding. I want to give you an example. Jesus told a story. It's a heavy story. In Luke 15, 16, right? Jesus tells the story. Look, he says, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried and went to the place of the dead, which is another word for Hades, which is another word for hell. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, 
Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. So now he's being comforted and you are in anguish. And he keeps going. It's a very sad story that Jesus was making a point that there will be a separation one day. And here in the story, what's fascinating about the story is he gives Lazarus a name, but we don't know the name of the rich man. And there's a reason for this. What is the reason? The reason is this. The rich man identified himself with his riches. So that's his identity. Whatever takes the place of God becomes your identity. Lazarus is given a name. And actually the word, the name Lazarus means God has helped. So he has an identity of God has helped versus an identity of I'm just a rich man. I don't have a name. Why? Because a lot of people identify themselves with what they have, not who they are. And that's a sad way to live life. Because when you don't have something, does that mean you stop being yourself? And we know many, plenty of stories of people who had a lot of friends, so they thought, until they didn't have the stuff that the friends wanted. A lot of people felt really good about themselves when they had stuff and then felt terrible when they didn't. When the economy crashed in 2008, many people committed suicide because they based their identity on their riches as opposed to God has helped me. Now, if we assume, well, I'm not rich, let me rephrase this conversation, my friends. James is not talking about the one percenters here. If you live in America, you are richer than 98% of the world's population. The rest of the world look at you and goes, rich. You have a car. Only 90% of the population in the West has cars. You ate today, rich. You have a roof over your head, rich. You had choices of what to put on your feet today, rich. You, you went in your kitchen and go, your kids went, there's nothing to eat. Only rich people talk like that. So this is not about the 1%, it's about the fact that you are already blessed. Position to be a blessing is the heart of God. See, our struggle is consumerism. That's a major struggle. And if you can't see that, you already are in trouble. 
that consumerism is the greatest struggle of the West. We're always wanting more. We're always plagued by one more thing. And then, my friends, the worst part of this, this is where spiritual maturity has to kick in. We confuse the American dream with God's dream. They're not the same thing. The reason why so many people are losing their faith is because they had faith in the American dream, not in the God that gives the dreams. I tell you, it's a rude awakening to realize, wait a minute, maybe what I bought into wasn't God's will, it was the American dream. Nothing wrong with the American dream, but that ain't the gospel. The gospel is not, you know, live comfortably and have 2.5 kids and move to Florida. That's not the gospel. That's American Christianity. The gospel is how has God positioned me to be a blessing. Nothing wrong with having, but man, when you identify yourself with what you have, you're in trouble. The gospel is to be a blessing. See, the hardest part to teach this is that when consumerism is in our bones, contentment is very elusive. It's very hard to find people who are content these days. And I mean rich people and poor people. It's very difficult to find people that you're like, man, this, this person really enjoys their life. We always seem to waiting, be waiting for something else to happen. When was the last time you saw someone you were like, man, that person is really content. Not fake contentment. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, glory to God. Like really content, really excited about where God has blessed them to be. Now, nothing wrong with being driven. You can be driven and still be content. You can have goals and dreams and aspirations, but still be content. Even if those goals and dreams don't come to pass, you're content because you know who you are in him. The Apostle Paul, man, it blows my mind. The, the, the philosophy, the heart of this man just fascinates me. Because he lived in the first century. He didn't live in America. He didn't write his words at Starbucks for cute Instagram posts. He, he wrote most of his words from a jail cell in a Roman Empire where the sewage would run under your feet. And he says things like this in Philippians 4. Watch this. Go ahead, throw Philippians 4. He says, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation. Whether it is a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do Everything through Christ who gives me strength. It's funny though, in America, we always quote the last part. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
He wasn't talking about go play basketball. Athletes are so good with this. I can do all things for Christ to keep me straight. He was talking about contentment. Context matters. You take the Bible out of context. Because that's the American way. It's to take. Always take. Even when it comes to scriptures, we just want to take. Isn't that amazing? When was the last time you came to church and said, God, I'm here to give? How refreshing would it be to hear someone come to you and say, Pastor, how can I give? It's now, what's in it for me? Does this church going to fit me? My agenda, my thing, my doctrine, my theology, my worship, my style. Pastor, because I can do all things to Christ who gives me strength. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) He goes on to say in Acts chapter 20, he says, in everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work. Watch this, hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, He said, Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that's the secret. The secret is that in giving, I receive. You don't know that unless you are a giver. You don't know that unless you live your life from that philosophy of giving. And when we say giving, we don't mean just money. We mean time, talent, treasure, attention. That's giving. And it's not giving to receive. That's the secret. It's just that in giving, automatically you will receive. And you don't know that unless you live that lifestyle. It's not, you know, what some people play Vending machine with God. No, it's it's freely giving that I freely receive. Are you tracking with me? Okay, I'll leave that alone. I'll jump to the next part of this. It doesn't get any easier, just so you know. Um, James goes on to say in verse 7, he talks now about the need for patience and the need for endurance. He says, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall. In the spring, they eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You must, you too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. 
For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take a note by heaven or earth or anything else. Just a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Can you say amen? Patience and endurance is much needed for this journey that we're in. If you're taking notes, what James is getting at is, he's getting at this, this concept, again, hard for us in the West to grasp, this concept that we're playing a long game here, we're not into instant gratification. When you play the instant gratification game, you will always be discontent. You will always be upset, and you will blame God for not blessing you the way you want him to bless you. And miss how he's already blessing you. Instant gratification is the reason why a lot of people are not in church this morning. Instant gratification is the reason why a lot of marriages are in trouble this morning. Instant gratification is the reason why some people cut corners to make money and lose their integrity in the process. Instant gratification is the reason why some friends are not talking. My friends, this journey, if you're taking notes, it's a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long race. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Patience and courage go together. If you notice, he said, be patient and have courage. This is why I talk to the fathers. Fathers, it takes courage to lead a family. It takes courage to stand in the gap day in and day out. It takes courage in our society right now to stand on God's principles and not be wavered by the things that are changing all around us. It takes courage to stay. Come hell or high water, my mind is made up. I'm going to follow Jesus. It takes courage to do the right thing where everybody's cutting corners. It takes courage to have integrity. It takes courage to be a man of your word. And a woman of your word. It takes courage to stay in the pocket when it's easy to while out. Can we be honest? It takes more courage to be quiet than to run your mouth. It takes courage to have quiet strength and not pretend that you're tough. Have you noticed the more someone runs their mouth, the more coward they are? It takes courage when people are talking about you and you keep your mouth shut. Am I talking to anybody in this place today? <laughs> Patience and courage go together. This is, can I tell you something? This journey is not for the faint of heart.
It takes courage to walk with Jesus. It takes courage to stand on principles. And I'd be wishy-washy. It takes courage to be a pillar in the community. And say, I'm not going anywhere. It takes more courage to stay with your family than to leave. In Galatians, again, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So, again, Long endurance, patience. He says, so now, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. I don't know what I'm talking to today. Don't give up. Listen, therefore, whenever, watch this again. We have the opportunity. We should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. See how he ties it all together? There is a time to sow. There's a time to reap. Don't buy into instant gratification. You know what they say. It takes 15 years to become an overnight success. Which I would say, it takes at least 10 years to have a successful marriage. So don't quit in the making of it. You want to be a man of God? That takes a lifetime. Some of the great men of God in the Bible didn't reach their peak until they were 80. <laughs> it wasn't until 80 that God was like, Moses, you're ready for me to use you now. Abraham, you're a hundred. Now you're ready. Now we're 13 talking about I'm ready. Ready to do what? Go, go, go do some push-ups. <laughs> he says, look to the prophets. These guys who's gone before us. Look to these guys who role model what it means to go to distance. The prophets, the reason why he says the prophets, you got to study the prophets, it's powerful. He's saying the prophets, you know why? Because these prophets lived years of faithfulness without seeing results. That's why he says prophets. Go look up guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah who served God under very difficult circumstances, 20, 30, 40 years without seeing results. And God says, those are my major prophets. Why? Because they stood the test of time. They didn't cave in. They didn't give up. They didn't give in. They became who I've called them to be even when no one around them was paying attention. Prophets like Jeremiah who told God, I wish you would kill me. Talk about depression. Because he said, no one's listening. But in the same vein, the same chapter, but he says, God, your word is shut up in my bones. I can't deny you. 
That's why he says, look to the prophets. Not the YouTube prophets. Who come out every four years. Look to the real prophets. Who stood the test of time. With courage. With patience. And God says, those are my people. Man, can we have people who can stand the test of time, not here today, gone tomorrow, always yakking, yeah, 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 but it's like your life doesn't produce anything worth seeing and remodeling. Come on, can we have some pillars who actually stand the test of time? Oh, I'm a little feisty this morning. I'm tired of people who are with a lot of Bible verses but no character to show for it. Look to the prophets. Please write this down. Success in God's eyes is being faithful long term. I never advise, I never ask for advice when people will be married two years. I always want to know from people who will be married at least 10. You put in some time. I don't need advice from parents of one. You got to at least have three. To give me advice. <laughs> Get what I'm saying? One, you think you got it figured out. Try three. Or four. Or five. <laughs> advice from people who never ran a church. How can I take your advice? Have you done it? Do you know what it takes? You need people that can withstand the test of time. He says, look to Job. He says, let me, let me tell you about Job. You know the story of Job. It's not Job. It's Job. <laughs> Another odd job I had in college, I worked for Rocky's Ace Hardware Store. They made me the paint advisor. I knew nothing about paint. <laughs> I love the mixing thing, but don't ask me anything. Just let me mix it. <laughs> but I worked with a guy that I was, again, witnessing to. And one day he came in and he said, so I started reading Job. <laughs> That's intense stuff, man. I was like, yeah, I know Job. Yeah, yeah. That is intense, what he went through. But you know what's amazing? He's in scriptures because of his endurance. That's why we talk about him. We talk about him because of his endurance through hell. The guy literally went through hell. Lost everything. But he said, naked I came, naked I will go. The Lord blesses, the Lord takes it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The long haul, go into distance. That's why he mentions Job. I was telling a group of men that I mentored in the church the last week. I said, here's what I'm at right now in life. I said, I want to make it to be a grandfather. How can we be really great when we're 70? Because I don't know if you've ever been to nursing homes. Like, we do nursing home outreaches. There's two types of people in nursing home. They're either really sweet or really grumpy. There's like nothing in between. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like you go to nursing homes, they either like, oh my gosh, the sweetest person in the world. Or like, oh my God, what the heck happened to this guy? <laughs> and I was like, guys, why is that? I think it's because you can reach a certain age in life and you realize you didn't really work on yourself. Because life will either make you sweet or make you bitter. I was like, how can we become sweet at 70? Because I don't know about you, man. There's too many bitter people around. Like people who call themselves followers of Jesus. Angry, bitter, frustrated. It's ah. <laughs> like, so, guys, I don't know about you. I want to become more sweet in my old age. That happens when you do the daily things of sowing. Sowing into the right soil. You know, this, this journey is about compound interest. It's what you do daily that compounds. This is what Paul is talking about, about, about sowing and reaping. Say you can't wake up one day at 70 think you're going to be amazing because you just became 70. You don't have an amazing marriage because you got married. You don't raise amazing kids because you went to work. It's because of the compound, of the daily compound. Like, my friends, pay attention to your daily routine because it's compounding. You know what's crazy? You are where you are in life right now based on your compound interest. That's what he's talking about. Long endurance, long thinking about like, listen, if I make a decision today, it's affecting my character tomorrow. And the more decisions I make, the more I'm building or damaging my character. Every single day. Every, that's why he's saying, don't swear. He's saying every yes is a no somewhere. Every no is a yes somewhere. So say what you mean and mean what you say because there's a compound interest. No one becomes great by accident. You don't arrive at great. You build to great. This is this journey. I pray God affords us to become grandparents. That we can take our kids, our, our grandkids on our lap and say, here's what it takes. Not, let me tell you about all the regrets. Regrets. Of life. Integrity, my friends, matters. And tell you something. There's many illustrations of the other way here for every illustration of a person with integrity and character there's illustrations of those who didn't have integrity and character you know why he says be patient because without patience you will birth an Ishmael without patience you will sell your birthright for a bowl of soup If you know what that means, read your Bible. 
People are still doing this. Without patience, you will fall for the wrong relationship. You will make the wrong business move. Without patience, sometimes you will leave in the middle of a test. Now realizing, man, if you were to stay the test, you would have got the testimony. Without patience, I tell the young people the other day, I say, listen, without patience, you will look at someone's life, but their life is a chapter 52, you are chapter 2. So embrace chapter 2, and you will create chapter 52 if you stand the test of time. I wish I could tell people, when you come to church, don't make any hasty decisions. Give God time. Give God time. We try to live by this principle, my wife and I. When we get an email that is not favorable, we say, take 24 hours before you respond. Because you don't want to respond out of emotion. You want to sit with things. Because usually your emotions will get in the way of the spirit. So you've got a tough decision to make. Sit with it. Takes time and patience to get the presence of God. That's why I love the altar. Because it takes patience to get. If you just want a quick transaction, you miss it. People, I see people coming into church like it's, a, like it's a transaction. I punched in, I punched out. I did it. It's like, no, you didn't do anything. You didn't, you didn't tarry. You know what tarry means? We don't use that word anymore. You didn't wait. You didn't sit with the Holy Spirit long enough to get something. Am I preaching this morning? He ends this part by saying, don't make deals with God. That's what he was saying. Hey, don't swear by anything he's saying. Don't make deals because usually when we're in trouble, we make deals with God. God, if you just, then I, it's like you can't keep your promises. Don't make deals. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Another thing I try to emulate and live by, my wife's right there. I tell the kids, I will never use the word promise. If I say yes, it's yes. If I say no, it's no. I don't want to use the word promise. I want my word to mean something. If dad says yes, it's yes. Sometimes dad says maybe. <laughs> and you know what that means to a kid? So, dad. <laughs> I said maybe. So. <laughs> that maybe is becoming a no really quick. My friends, the goal, let me wrap this up. Is, is simply this. God is into character building. And one of the best things that he uses, we don't like this, but it's the truth. Suffering leads to character building. That's why we shouldn't try to get out of anything prematurely. Because that's when he's really working on our character to mold us and shape us 
to look more like him and less like ourselves. So if you're not into that, you're not going to be into Jesus. Simply as that. Because Jesus can't wait for you to be in a bind because he's like, man, this is a good opportunity for me to work on your character. You're trying to get out of there. He's like, no, please stick around. Let me mold you. Let me shape you. That's why I titled this talk, Slow and Steady. That's this journey. Slow and steady will win the race. And you are in a race. It's just as a marathon. It's not a sprint. Stand with me as we pray this morning. We started with putting God over money. Because that's the currency of our world. Got to make money to live. But you can't live without the one who creates the currency. I mean, you can exist, but living, has two different things. And it takes patience. It takes endurance to go the distance. And I think once in a while, God will... It's almost like God presses pause and says, Hey, are we going the distance here? Are we making sure that we're living in compound interest and not instant gratification? Because today may just be another deposit in the eternal bank account. Because God is not just in the moment, He's in the eternity. Every decision we make echoes in eternity. That could be good. That could be bad. You could be invested in your eternal life with him or you could be invested in your eternal life without him. That's a choice we each have to make each and every day. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray this morning? Forever, would you join me in prayer? Online, would you join me? And take a moment to reflect and say, where am I in my marathon have I allowed anything to creep in into my life that shouldn't be there? Have I embraced the character building that the Holy Spirit wants to do in me? Is there anything I need to surrender today? Is there anything I need to repent from? Is there anything I need to align myself back to Him? Because I'm not enough unless He comes. But when He comes, I can do all things through Him gives me strength so father in jesus name only you can confirm your word in our hearts this morning behind every heart there's a need that only you can meet so holy spirit would you come and minister to each and every one of us take your place your rightful place in our hearts remove any idol that doesn't belong give us strength to surrender anything and empower us today to go the distance with patience with endurance build that character Lord we want to be more like you and less like ourselves our heart is open our minds are receptive speak Lord better yet you have spoken now empower us to live what you spoken over us 